Here's former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg making his pitch to voters on January 31st in Council Bluffs, Iowa, ahead of the Iowa caucuses on February 3rd. The following audio is courtesy of Reuters. So let me start off by asking you to form in your own mind the image that is the guiding image for this whole campaign for me. And it's how it's going to feel. The first time, I want you to picture it as specifically as you can, that first time that the sun will come up over Council Bluffs and Donald Trump is no longer the president of the United States. Feels good, right? Isn't it a relief just to know that that day is going to come one way or the other? Isn't it nice to think that we can put the chaos behind us one day? Put the meanness behind us? Put the tweets behind us? Won't that be nice? I think we're all, we're all ready for that. And so much depends on making sure we bring that day about. And the number one question I'm hearing now from caucus goers making up their minds is, how do we make sure we're going to win? And I'm here to make the case for you that you don't have to choose between the best way to win and the best way to govern. That actually the only way to win is the best way to govern, and it's to focus on the future. It's to understand what it'll be like on that day and what America is going to need. Because on that day, we're going to be facing challenges, the likes of which were not known or understood in this country just a few years or decades ago. Think about it. The sun will be coming up in a climate where we are this close to the point of no return, where in our communities, right here in the middle of the country, once-in-a-century floods are becoming an annual occurrence. That's happening right now, and it's picking up steam. sun will be coming up over an economy being profoundly changed by technology, by gig employment, by shifts that we could not have even pictured just a few years ago. And while the president is telling us everything's great because the Dow Jones is looking good, I think more and more of us are wondering whether that economy is going to serve us well. That sun will be coming up over schools where kids are learning active shooter drills before they are old enough to know how to read. And on that day, we will be facing security challenges on top of conventional issues and anti-terrorism, dealing with things like global health security, if you're watching the news out of China climate security, cybersecurity issues that are mounting as we speak. These issues will be new in kind. The new president will have to confront them and do it in an atmosphere of almost unprecedented partisan division and dysfunction in Washington, D.C. That's what we're going to have to confront in order to govern well. In order to turn the page on that, it's going to take a focus on the future that I would argue is the exact same thing it's going to take in order to defeat Donald Trump. Because he, too, represents a challenge the likes of which we've not quite seen in our politics. Now think about this. Every time my party has won the White House, every time we've succeeded, it's been with a candidate who has been focused on the future. Just think through the last half century how we went. It's somebody who is opening the door to a new generation of leadership and moving past the political fights from before. So if we're thinking about how to make sure we win, if we're thinking about what risks we want to take, this is a good moment to remember that we win when we look to the future. Think about it this way. Uh, I know that, that the competitors uh, in this race, of course, all view this differently. 
the vice president will say that we cannot take a risk on someone new. But if you think about that lesson from experience, I would argue that what history has taught us is at a moment like this, we cannot take the risk of trying to fall back on the old playbook and rely on the familiar to deal with a fundamentally new challenge in this election. Now, another pr approach that's being offered to you comes from Senator Sanders, uh, speaking to goals that I think everybody shares, but presenting it in a political form that says that you've either got to choose between revolution or status quo, and there's nothing in between. Coming at the very moment when we actually have a historic American majority that agrees not just on what we're against, not just a majority ready to move on from this president, but on what we're for, just so long as we include everybody in that vision. A majority that is ready for a game-changing transformation to our health care system, the biggest expansion of coverage since Medicare was invented, just not so sure about the idea of kicking people off their private plans. A majority that will embrace the idea of the biggest expansion in college affordability our country has seen since the GI Bill. Just not wild about the idea of working families subsidizing the children of millionaires and billionaires. We actually have an opportunity to energize, not polarize, that majority. Not only to win the election, but in order to govern what will be a dangerously divided nation. And so this has to be an effort that makes room for Democrats, for sure, for independents who are done with this president, and for those of what I like to call future former Republicans who still believe in the idea of limited executive power. We've got to make room for everybody. So my point is, if we want to win, we've got to leave the politics of the past in the past. I care deeply about the decisions that led to the Iraq war, but right now I'm mainly focused on how to make sure we're not dealing with an Iran war by the time I take office. I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned about protecting Social Security, but I'm much less interested in who said what in the 1990s on the issue than I am in dealing with the fact that Social Security needs to be defended from a president who is seeking to cut that and Medicaid today. We have got to act now, and we've got to leave the politics of the past in the past and exchange it for a politics defined by boldness, by belonging, and by action. That is what, what I am offering to you, and that's why I'm asking for your support. And the good news is I see so many Americans ready to make this happen, ready to form that majority, even a greater majority than President Obama had to work with 10 years ago to get these things done, ready to make sure that we boost wages and empower workers, including standing with organized labor in this country to ensure the economy actually works for us. Ready to act on climate change before it swamps our communities, our economy, and our country. Ready to enact common sense gun law compatible with the Constitution that will save thousands of Americans' lives every year from red flag laws to background checks to seeing to it that the kind of weaponry I trained on to go to war has no business being sold anywhere near an American school for profit.
here is an American majority ready to take steps now to make this into a country where your race has no bearing on your health or your wealth, your life expectancy, or your relationship with law enforcement. Ready to insist that no matter your religion, this country belongs to people of every religion and no religion equally, but people of faith could be paying as much attention to the poor people's campaign as to the 700 Club because God does not belong to a political party in the United States of America. Most Americans can see that, clearly. Most Americans from every political stripe support their kids, their schools, and their teachers and are ready for a secretary of education who believes in public education and will build up our schools. We are united on that already. All we've got to do is galvanize, energize, and empower that body of Americans ready to make something happen. And so when I ask for your support, when I'm asking you to caucus for me, it's not that I ran for this office out of some desire to occupy it. It's in the name of a vision of what the office is for. I'm here to make the case that the presidency has a purpose, and that the purpose of the presidency is not the glorification of the president. It's the unification and the empowerment of the American people to get these big things done. And if there's one thing that I have seen across my travels in this campaign in the last year, is it is that among us, including among Iowans, are the faces not just of the challenge, but of the solution. I saw it in a, in a chance encounter with someone I had served with, hadn't seen since we were both in Afghanistan, ran into her by chance at the airport. And I hadn't seen her since she was injured in an insider attack while we were both out there. I saw her walking down the airport concourse with her teenage son wearing a T-shirt that said it was from the Wounded Warrior Project, and it said, some assembly required on the front of the T-shirt. I asked her how she was doing. She lifted up her knee, tapped on her leg, her prosthetic leg, and said that the Navy had fixed her up just fine, and she was looking forward to an upcoming deployment. That's what's at stake. People are willing to do whatever is required of them by the United States of America when they are in uniform. That is why they and their families deserve a commander-in-chief who will never ask them to go into harm's way if there's not a good reason and will take care of them during and after their time of service. I'm seeing the face of our economic challenge among people like uh, a guy who came to one of our events, lifetime, lifelong Republican, he said he was driving for DoorDash now because everyone, he said, needs a side job these days. Think about that. If everybody needs a side job these days, that makes it sound like we are living through a time of national hardship, not a season of American plenty. That's why something is up, upside down in an economy where Amazon and Chevron can pay precisely zero in federal income taxes, and someone like that's got to take on multiple jobs. We can do better. And Americans can see that right now. I see the face of solutions everywhere I go, often from people barely old enough or not yet old enough to vote, and often in areas that are thought of as conservative, but where we have the same interests and the same needs. I'm seeing out of the corner of my eye, Andrew, good example. And, and he's a precinct captain now, which is awesome. Because uh, the... Uh, 
First time we met was in Shenandoah. Uh, couldn't, the day couldn't have been more different than this one. Uh, it was probably 100 degrees outside and 110 inside the barn where we were gathered. And he stuck up his hand to ask about the question of how rural families and agricultural communities could be the tip of the spear in dealing with climate change, which is exactly right, because we need farming to be at the forefront of getting this done, and we shouldn't just be calling for it. We should be paying for it with federal policy to support our farmers in getting that done. I saw the face of the solution with someone else who's since become a, a super volunteer on this campaign, who I met just a couple of weeks ago in Emmitsburg. Uh, she raised her hand at a town hall meeting to ask about immigration policy because, she said, she remembers the pain her family went through a couple years ago when her father left the family. And she knows exactly what the words family separation meant to her family. And she has the moral imagination to put herself in the shoes of someone totally different. Maybe a six-year-old boy from Honduras caught up in this president's policies somewhere on the border in Texas, a thousand miles away from where she lives. And she can see why it is so important that we have an immigration policy that actually matches our values as well as our laws. If she can see it, why can't Washington? Time to get Washington to look a little more like our best communities and towns and families before it starts going the other way around. So my point is, if there's one thing I've learned in my travels across the state and across this country in the last year, it is that we already have what it takes as a country to fix these problems if we are willing to face the future. And that is where Monday evening comes in. I am asking you, starting Monday evening, to turn the page and to be ready to deliver a different future where America is defined not by these patterns of exclusion, right and left, that are making it so hard for so many for different reasons to get ahead, but rather by a sense of belonging that will lift all of us up and heal our communities as well as our politics. That's what this campaign is about. So I want to make sure this is a conversation, even though our numbers have grown bigger since my first appearances in those diners. It's never too big of a room for a conversation. Uh, we got uh, uh, folks with microphones. Give a wave if you got one of those mics so you can see them. They will come to you. They'll hold the mic and everything. I'll do my best to be concise so we can get as many questions as possible. Yes, I see one right there. Um, African-American mortality rates are going up. Uh, African-American infants and babies, those mortality rates are going up. It's heartbreaking. What are we going to do about it? Well, first of all, we got to face the fact that that didn't just happen. That is the result of countless layers of discrimination that amount to systemic racism in our country. And the prospects of a child born today are different for reasons, some of them stretching back hundreds of years, the dispossession of the family of that infant, and some of them present right now, today. For example, to this day, a black patient in an ER is less likely, measurably less likely, to be believed if she describes being in pain than a white patient, which is one of the reasons 
why a black woman is three times as likely to die related to childbirth as a white woman. And this is even when you measure the effects aside from income and poverty. This is why I've put forward what we call the Frederick Douglass plan. If we had a Marshall plan as a country to rebuild Europe after World War II, it's time that we have that kind of ambition and those kinds of resources invested right here at home to deal with systemic racial inequality. And that's true in health. It's true in economic empowerment, which is why we need to lift up minority-owned businesses and make sure that the purchasing power of our country goes to that. It's why we need to make sure that we have greater political empowerment because decisions about everything from Medicaid expansion to health equity in the way that we run our, our hospitals and our health departments, those decisions will be better if they are the result of free and fair elections. And often, right now, we see voter suppression that's got a strong, strong racial profile to it. So it's time for a 21st century Voting Rights Act to make sure that that voter suppression can't, can't, can't happen again. All of these things are connected. From health to education, education to home ownership, home ownership to economic empowerment, encounters with the criminal legal system and voting itself, all of this needs action right now. And this is as urgent in a mostly white uh, room having a conversation as it is uh, in a mostly African-American room having a conversation because all of us are in the moral stakes of getting this right. fix the homeless crisis right. in America? So the first thing I think we have to understand when it comes to the crisis of homelessness is that it is different in different areas. Uh, you know, there are areas, uh, certainly in Nebraska or Iowa or my hometown of South Bend, where you can buy a house for less than a parking space cost in Oakland. And yet, we have homeless issues in our communities, too. So it's not only a matter of what's going on with the price of housing, although that's definitely part of it. Uh, part of what we've got to do is expand by 2 million the number of affordable housing units built in this country. Another thing we've got to do is expand by 7 million the number of Americans who are getting support. We can do that if we're willing to invest $430 billion in clearing these backlogs for support, especially for families with kids. But we've got to recognize that it's not going to be one size fits all. And one thing you'll notice, whether it's on housing and homelessness or health equity or any other number of proposals I've made, is that they're designed to respect the fact that communities can develop solutions too, but they need help from Washington. In other words, not all of the answers have to come from Washington, but more of the money should. And we've got to fund these efforts. That's true also in recognizing that even in areas where housing is considered more affordable, mental health and addiction are playing a huge role in driving homelessness. So it's one of many, many reasons why this country has got to get comfortable talking about and dealing with addiction and mental health just as we would any physical mental health, uh, physical medical conditions, because it's affecting all of us. This is not a specialty thing. Every family is affected. That's why we're proposing healing and belonging grants to support communities building the mental health infrastructure that is needed. And it's why we've got to take a customized approach for the challenges uh, that different communities and different individuals and families are facing. But alongside all of these very complex issues, there's a very simple one, too, which is that people in this country need to get paid more. Right now, if you are working, working full-time on minimum wage, there is not one single county in the United States of America where you could afford a two-bedroom apartment. 
So we can't just uh, make it out to be uh, a challenge on the cost and pricing side. There's an income problem in this country. And while the national income's looking great, the GDP is looking nice, we're not seeing it get to so many folks, which is why there are now working homeless people full time with full-time jobs experiencing homelessness today. One of many, many reasons why we need to not only increase the minimum wage, uh, but ensure that we're counting the right things when we count what it is to have a good economy. And when I'm president, the number one measure of the economy's performance is not going to be the Dow Jones. It's going to be the income growth of the 90%, because a good economy is one that's actually reaching all of us. Hi. I've been a nurse for greater than 35 years. Um, the last portion of my career I've spent in home health nursing and long-term care. I'm seeing a lot of difficulties with resources as far as people don't have the monies to take care of them. They can't come to the care center. Medicare won't pay for certain things. I'm very concerned, where are these people going to go, and, and what's your idea on how we can make changes to that? Absolutely. And this is another example of one of those issues that's going to gather in severity in the future. Barring some miracle of science, one thing we can count on is each passing year, each of us is going to get one year older. And we are not prepared for this. We don't have enough workers in the field, and we don't have a real system for funding long-term care insurance. I remember the conversation we had when my father became ill, sitting at the hospital with my mother and a social worker uh, when we thought he was going to need long-term care, and watching my mother's face as the social worker explained politely that the best bet might be to just spend everything that she's ever owned until her assets are low enough to qualify for Medicaid. And I'm seeing a lot of nodding, like many families here have been through that conversation. And maybe you've also had that uh, that sense of, wait a minute, is that how we do this in the United States of America? Is that how it works? And for far too many people, the answer is yes. Meanwhile, Medicaid itself is on the chopping block. The president announced that yesterday. And we lack the resources to make sure that we've got the facilities we need. So what can we do about it? Well, I've proposed what we call long-term care America. It's a universal benefit, $90 a day for anyone who needs long-term care. Uh, it will help tremendously. It may not take care of everything but it'll move us way beyond where we are right now. And it's designed to be flexible because for most people, it's best to age in place, at least up to a point. Depends on the individual. But generally, as much as possible, you want to keep people at home if you can. But uh, right now, the system actually pushes people into the institutional setting, often before that's the right answer. And so we need to make sure we're supporting that kind of flexibility. But in order for that to happen, we've got to support the profession of people working there not just uh, nurses such as yourself. And let's hear it, by the way, for nurses, knowing that we got a nursing shortage. But uh, home health care and direct care workers that we're going to need millions more of than we have right now. It's why we need national standards to build up that profession. It's why we need to make sure they're getting paid better. Uh, and it's why we need the kind of support as a matter of a pipeline to train and skill fo folks going into that field. One of my proposals for national service, I'm proposing we could create a million paid voluntary national service opportunities a year for people who want to do something to make their community better. Part of that's a community health corps. 
because I think a lot of people who have that experience for that year will go on to nourish an excitement about the field as a whole, and it'll help us meet that shortage that we're facing. Uh, what we know won't work is the status quo. We can't go on like we are. And each year it's going to get more difficult if we don't have a solution. So I'm no, I know I'm the youngest guy in the race, but I want to be known as the uh, long-term care candidate too because it's so important for all of our generations. Let's go to the back there. Sorry, thank you. Well, good. We're going to try to make that happen for you, okay? All right. I like how you're starting out here. Yeah? <laughs> but when you do, how will you handle Trump? Uh, well, so here's the thing. You ever, you ever seen one of those uh, Chinese finger traps where the more you pull, the tighter it gets? I think that's kind of how it is with him. Here's the trick to dealing with someone like Donald Trump and the discipline that's going to be required to go up against him. It's the discipline of denying him his extraordinary power to change the subject. That's what it's going to take. And the reason that's harder than it sounds is he does things that command attention. Right? If he tells a lie, you have to say what the truth is. You have to respond. If he insults a war hero, you have to respond. If he does something racist, you have to respond. So I will. I'm definitely not going to hesitate to respond to him without becoming what it is we're fighting, but just responding in the right way. And uh, look, I'm not too worried about bullies. I, I'm gay and I grew up in Indiana. I'll be all right. Um, And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen worse forms of incoming than a tweet full of typos. So I don't think it's going to be rat rattling me with his, with his incoming. But as much as possible and as quickly as possible, we, we put that in its place. Well, uh, I'm ready to call, as a Midwesterner, I'm ready to call him out for turning his back on farmers. Uh, as somebody from an industrial community, ready to call him out. And if he gets to the chest thumping, I will be ready to point out that if he doesn't understand traumatic brain injury, he needs to understand it can be a hell of a lot more serious than bone spurs. And we will have that conversation. <laughs> then we come right back to our own message. Because every election is actually, in my view, just about one question. And the question is this. The question is the voter asking, How's my life going to be different if you're president instead of you? And it turns out, on that question, we've got all the best answers. We're the ones trying to get you a raise. We're the ones for paid family leave. We're the ones ready to keep your kids school. We're the ones serious about climate change. We're the ones who believe that an economy is only a good one if it's actually getting to you on issue after issue after issue. Folks are with us, and we got the best answers. That's why he needs us arguing about other stuff. That's why he needs us arguing about him, his hair, his, his whether to buy Greenland, whatever, whatever he does this week, right? So, yeah, we'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him when he have to, but I'll never allow him to take up the majority of our attention because the less we're talking about him, the more we're talking about you, and talking about you is how we're going to win. Thanks, 
Great. If you just pass the mic to the interpreter. Hi, everybody. Wow, there's so many people behind me. I didn't realize there were so many people in the room. That's awesome. And, and hi, Mayor Pete. This is my first time seeing you. Thank you so much for coming to Council Bluffs. Uh, I am here speaking on behalf of the deaf community as well as the disabled community. And I want to ask you uh, that, or bring up the point of the lack of accessibility being such a huge problem uh, in employment, uh, in access to education, higher education, access to healthcare, access to community events and civic engagement, uh, and just access to communication with people uh, you know, in my own community. And having a problem with asking those entities to provide ac uh, access accommodations, such as interpreters and other things, how will you address that that not only happens here, but nat uh, nationally, that people with disabilities and deaf people are not getting the accommodations that are afforded to them by the Americans with Disabilities Act, and what will you do about that? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for speaking up uh, for Americans with disabilities, who, by the way, represent the largest group of Americans covered by civil rights law. And because people age into disability, it's worth remembering that Anybody who doesn't identify as an American with disabilities uh, should identify as temporarily without disabilities. Um, so whether we're talking about accessibility at events, whether we're talking about access to voting and our democracy, where we know that too many polling places are not accessible, or when we're talking about our workforce, the reality is the whole country is worse off because we have not done a good enough job of supporting those with disabilities. And we can see this starting in the educational system, where the country has failed to fully fund the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is why I'm committed to ensuring that it will get full funding uh, in the 40% set by law uh, so that we no longer have that shortfall and that gap. We also need to make sure that the support doesn't end when you're 18 years old. And that's why we need to take steps on everything from the structure of SSDI, uh, which is actually creating uh, almost an economic punishment for uh, those who rely on SSDI and want to work more to be able to do it, to ensuring that we build up and enforce the need for uh, greater resources uh, in our workplaces, in our civic spaces, uh, and across our economy and communities. And those are some of the policy steps that need to happen. But let me also mention, just as a uh, as a matter of worldview, why this is so important. It's not only about justice for those with disabilities affected by these policies. It's not only about how we support you. It's about the fact that if we don't, we're depriving you of the ability to support your community. It's about what you have to offer, not just what we need to offer you. And it's why I believe we should set a specific goal of doubling the workforce participation of Americans with disabilities by the time we celebrate the next anniversary of the ADA. Uh, in 2040, 2030, sorry. An America, that, an America that fails to support and engage the amazing contributions of those with disabilities is an America that is not only unjust, but also cheating itself. And we'll do better on, on my watch. Did you call the last question? I'm looking at my organizers. One more? We, yeah, we can get one more in. Yeah.
Mike's coming to you just now. Um, so I just I was saying, I also grew up in a small town as a gay woman, and a lot of rights have changed since we were younger. Are there more laws and rights you want to implement for the LGBTQ community, and is it something that you see being nationwide? Yeah, for sure. And, and I think part of the problem is that it's not the same in different parts of the country. There are some parts of the country where there are no protections at all. Uh, I think a lot of folks would assume that at least by now you couldn't be fired. Uh, but depending where you live, that's not necessarily true. That's why we need the Federal Equality Act to cover the entire country and establish that you cannot be discriminated against because of your gender identity or because of who you love. Um, and look, this is, um, I mean, marriage equality was a great leap forward, but I'm worried about the perception that when marriage equality came, uh, we just sort of solved all our problems when it came to equality as a country. Uh, and just as the civil rights movement did not end the struggle for equality for black Americans, marriage equality was not the end of the struggle for justice uh, and, uh, and equal rights. And whether we're talking about the things covered by the Equality Act, which, by the way, we're going to need no matter what the Supreme Court does in this upcoming civil rights case because it covers more. Or we're talking about what's happening to trans Americans who are being denied uh, the kind of health care that they ought to be able to count on. Uh, they're being denied support in school and even the chance to serve. Again, from a president who avoided serving when it was his turn. If you can serve this country and do a good job, we want you and we ought to honor your service no matter your identity. So those things will change when I'm president. Okay. Well, I know we're out of time, but I'm so thankful for having been able to be with you today, and I hope this gives you a sense uh, of what I'm talking about, that we don't have to choose between listening to your head and listening to your heart. You don't have to choose between governing well and winning big. You don't have to choose. We have to choose all of these things. We have to get all of this right, and this is our one shot. This is our only chance. And these are issues that cannot wait 10 years. They cannot wait four years. It's got to happen right now. Let me leave you with the case for hope at a time when the word hope has maybe fallen a little bit out of fashion in our politics because it's so divided and, and, and so tough and so bleak out there. Um, but here's why I think it's so important to think about hope. I would argue that some sense of hope is what propelled you to be in this room right now, that that's the one thing everybody here has in common. Uh, you need some measure of hope in order to be part of any of this process at all, uh, certainly in order to run. I, I think that there is a lot of meaning in the fact that they took the word hopeful uh, turned it into a noun, and use it as another word for candidate. Have you noticed that? Like, I'm here as a 2020 hopeful, right? Because running for office is an act of hope. You only do it if you believe that it matters in our everyday lives that we have the right hands on the pulleys and levers of government guided by the right values. That's why we do this. And if running is an act of hope, so is volunteering and knocking on doors, so is contributing. Voting and caucusing is itself an act of hope. And at a moment when there is this temptation to switch it all off because it is so exhausting just to consume the news every day, this is an opportunity not only to cultivate that hope that brought you here, but to spread it to others in your life who maybe have turned it off, but who we need in order to bring about a different result. That's what you can do in a way that, frankly, is more powerful than ever seeing an ad from one of us candidates, is to hear from you telling your story of what brought you into this room. And if you're ready to do that, that, I believe, is how we're going to begin to make change and act to make history. And Iowa has 
a wonderful knack for making history and changing people's understanding of what is possible. First time I set foot in Iowa, uh, flew into Omaha with some friends, rented a car, and we were out of the Council Bluffs office, but actually they immediately sent us to Creston because that's where my friends and I were, uh, uh, were told that we were needed by the Obama campaign in 2008 when we were knocking on doors as volunteers. And in those few days, I learned so much uh, about Iowa, but also so much about the process, and then was here in Iowa when you all changed what America thought was possible in our presidential politics. And then, just a couple years after that, about a decade ago, I wasn't here in Iowa. I was at home, but I was watching when Iowa gave someone like me permission to believe that I would one day, would day be able to wear this wedding ring that I got on right now. You, you did that. You made that possible. So I'm just asking you to make history one more time. I'm asking if you're ready on Monday to change what the world thinks we can do. Are you ready for that sunrise we're talking about and to make sure it happens sooner rather than later? And are you ready to bring your friends along the way? Friends, I think you're going to make me the next president of the United States, and when you do, I will work every day to make you proud. Thank you for coming. Thank you for caring. And I'll see you when we have a lot to celebrate on Monday night. Thank you.